So please turn with me, if you would, to Mark 5, 1 through 20. This is where we will behold and consider the wonders of God in his word this morning, Mark 5, 1 through 20. The question I asked last time I preached, if you recall, was was this, what do you fear? What's your greatest fear? And related to this, we asked, how do we change that fear, our behavior, our outlook related to that fear? And we saw in the last narrative the disciples' great fear at a great the disciples' fear at a great storm that descended on their vessel as they were going across the Sea of Galilee. And, and we saw Jesus not only rebuke that great storm so that there was a great calm, but he then turned and rebuked the fear of the disciples because it was simply a symptom of their unbelief. And, of course, we saw that they were moved by that great act of authority by Christ to great fear and awe and wonder of him. And so, in light of that narrative, I I wanted us to consider this. How foolish would it be for these disciples, after having experienced this, to ever be afraid of a storm at sea again when Jesus is in the ship? How foolish would it have looked if the next time they're at sea and Jesus is with them and a great storm comes and they begin to panic and try to bucket brigade out themselves and try to take their lives back into their own hands. No, we'd like to think, I mean, I wouldn't put it past these disciples, but, or us, but we, we'd like to think that what would happen is they'd be like, ah, we got another squall, Jesus, do you mind taking care of this? Right? They would entrust their lives to him. They would surrender their lives to him. Because they fear him more than they fear a storm. They've seen his great power. So we said this, fear is the antidote for fear. Specifically, divine fear is the antidote for any fear of the unknown. And today we'll see this again uh, because Jesus' divine authority will be on full display. And the pressing question for us is... Will I surrender to him? Will I surrender to this one who has all power and all authority? Will I entrust my life to him? Or will I try to hold on to it? Will I try to preserve it? To maintain some sense of control? And this, as if you haven't figured out, we are going to be keeping with this this theme of fear, and that's because this, this is really a three-part sermon series from Mark 4.35 to 5.43. All, all three of these narratives are intentionally interlinked and interconnected by Mark and all contain specific instances of fear. But, as we've already mentioned, they're actually very generally all about fear of the unknown, fear of what would happen. And in the midst of of this fear, Jesus always proves himself greater and stronger. So the main idea for this whole 
sweeping passage, Mark 4.35 through 5.43, is this. Jesus is greater and stronger than anything we will face. And that's where we even get the, the title for this sermon series, Jesus is Greater and Stronger. And the main message of all three of these narratives is divine fear is the antidote for fear, fear of the unknown. And the main exhortation for us then, as we've heard this morning already, is fear the Lord and surrender your life to him. And specifically, in Mark 5, 1 through 20, we, we can put a finer point on it and say this. It, the message is, the exhortation to us is fear the Lord above the unknown due to loss of self-security and self-autonomy, self-governance, trying to preserve your life. Fear Jesus above your preserving your life and surrender your life to him. And this fits with the main with one of the main messages of Mark, which we know the main message, we should be able to say it now together. Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, and he surprisingly serves and suffers in in order to save his people, follow him. This is the discipleship theme that this passage is linking into. We can't read Mark without deciding if we will follow Jesus and be with him. This is an identifying marker of those who are insiders of the kingdom. They are with Jesus, and this is something that does not come without a cost. And this becomes even more clear today. One of the, the main uh, verses that controls all of Mark is, is Mark eight thirty four, where Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Following Jesus does come with a cost, and we will see that today. If you trade Jesus and the kingdom now for worldly temporary securities— you will lose everything. So, in this narrative, we're going to see the very disruptive presence of Jesus. He shakes up our lives as we like to think they are because his divine authority shatters any illusion that we actually have control, that we are actually preserving our lives. And that authority instills fear. And the question is, what will we do with that fear? Will we resist Jesus and try to hold on to our lives, or will we surrender our lives to him? So look with me now at our passage, Mark 5, 1 through 20. Very similar structure to uh, Mark four thirty five through 41. There we saw first the stormy situation at sea and, and then the revealing responses, Right? We have a very similar situation here today, only instead of a natural storm at sea, we see a supernatural storm in a man. And so in verses 1 through 5, we have the supernatural situation. And then in verses 6 through 20, we have the revealing responses. So look with me now, if you would, at verses 1 through 5, the supernatural situation. Let's see what's, what's happening here. Verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. So, we're, we're given a location. Now we see where they were headed in the first place. Remember, Jesus gave the command in, in, the, in the last uh, narrative, let us go across to the other side. 
Well, here they've made it to the country of the Gerasenes, the complete opposite side of the Sea of Galilee. And, and this is a predominantly Gentile region. So it's already shouting at us. This passage is already, already shouting to us, outsiders. These are outsiders. And remember, Jesus said, let's go to this side. He had a destination in mind. They're not here by accident. So what, what are they doing here? Well, it doesn't take very long before this situation starts to progress. Look at verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So once Jesus steps off the boat, before he can even get his land legs under him, in, a, in the human sense, a man immediately meets him coming out of the tombs, and he has an unclean spirit. It's as if this demoniac was waiting for Jesus. This immediately really gives the sense of he is right there. So who is this guy? Well, Mark takes a second to tell us. Verses 3 through 5, he interrupts this entire narrative, all the action, to give us the backstory of who this demoniac is. It's, it's like a scene in a movie where a, where a new character is introduced and the story's going on, a new character steps in, and then all of a sudden it does a, a, a backstory video montage of this guy for about a minute and then to tell you who he is, and then it comes back in in the action. That's what Mark's doing. We get a, we get a little interruption in the scene here. So look with me at verses 3 through 5, and let's see who exactly this demoniac is. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So I want us to note three things about this demoniac. Three observations. First, he is unclean. Second, he is unsubduable. And third, he is enduring unrelenting torment and suffering. Unclean, unsubduable, unrelenting suffering and torment. First observation, he is unclean, potentially in three ways. So he's unclean potentially in three ways. Obviously, he has an unclean spirit. We can just agree right now that's the epitome of unclean, right? He has an unclean spirit. But how else is he unclean? Chances are, given that this man is from the region of the Decapolis, which we'll see at the end where he goes back to his home, that they're in a Gentile country, he is a Gentile. This is a foreigner. He is unclean due to his ethnicity. And furthermore, not only is he, does he have an unclean spirit, not only is he a Gentile, but Mark describes him in this way. He lived among the tombs. So the, the original Greek here, it makes room for the idea it's not just living among the tombs. This man is potentially making his home in the tombs. Caves cut out into the stone. He is living in those. So just by his proximity to the dead, by the law, he is unclean. So this man has an unclean spirit. He is a foreigner, a Gentile. 
and he lives among the dead. He's unclean three times over. Therefore, he is an outsider three times over. Complete outsider. Second observation. He is unsubduable, and no man could bind him. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. He's unsubduable. He's, he's ripping apart chains. He's shattering shackles. And then Mark makes this, this leading observation. No one had the strength to subdue him. Mark is like, he's like a good reporter. He's building up, he's building up the anticipation. He, he just totally sets this up. Because we know, we've seen the one who is strong enough to subdue him. He just calmed a storm at sea, and he just stepped off the boat. So we're just on the edge of our seat, but we still have one more observation, so let's not get ahead of ourselves. Third and final observation, not only is the demoniac unclean, not only is he unsubduable, but he is also under unrelenting torment and suffering. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So Mark, throughout this narrative, will intermingle plural and singular pronouns, so it, it, it can be discombobulating. You don't know when is, when is it the man talking and doing things, when is, it the, the, when is it the demons, as we will see, it's more than one. And I think this is, this is Mark's point. So when we see this, we might ask the question, is this man screaming in torment because of the demons? Or are the demons making him scream and, and cry out? Is this man cutting himself with stones to try to get these demons out of his body? Or are the demons making this man self-inflict harm on himself? I think the answer Mark expects to these questions is yes to all of the above. This man is under unrelenting torment because of this demonic oppression, and he has no hope. There is no way out. No one can subdue him. So this is the supernatural situation. Behold the outsider, unclean three times over, uncontrollable, unsubduable, in unrelenting torment. Who is the one who is strong enough to subdue this one? Well, we know already. So in part two, when we look at these revealing responses, we will certainly see this about Jesus. He is the one who is strong enough. But what we will also see in these revealing responses is what these responses reveal about the nature of those who meet Jesus. So look with me now at verses 6 through 20, the revealing responses. We will see three revealing responses here. First, in verses 6 through 13, we will see the revealing response of the unclean spirits. Second, in verses 14 through 17, we will see the revealing response of the people of the region. And then Third, and finally, we will see in verses 18 through 20, the revealing response of the delivered demoniac. So, first, let's look, consider the revealing response of the unclean spirits. And can we, once again, just agree up front 
that demons, unclean spirits, they are the epitome of outsiders, right? They're the epitome of outsiders of the kingdom of God. We're not sitting here wondering, oh, I wonder if these guys will be, end up being insiders in the kingdom. Let me just eliminate that tension right now. These guys are outsiders. So what we gain from that is, is we will see by their behavior the defining characteristics of an outsider of the kingdom of God. So look with me at verse, verse 6. Uh, let me just mention, we will see that their, their reaction, their response reveals two things. First, their powerlessness. And second, we will see that their ultimate desire is to be away from Jesus in order to preserve and control their lives. Their greatest fear here is losing their life. Look with me at at verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. So the the story was interrupted to give the backstory, and now we're we're picking right back up to, to, to what happened. We were wondering, how did this guy meet Jesus so immediately? Well, apparently, he saw Jesus from afar. Perhaps when Jesus was still on the boat, hasn't even made it to shore yet, and he runs to him. Now, there's different thoughts on this. Is he running to attack Jesus? Is this an an all-out assault? Well, I, I don't think we can separate his running from what we see next. He fell down before him. He fell down before him. Now, Mark uses an interesting term here because we've seen people fall before Jesus already. We've seen people kneel before him. But but the word that Mark uses here is is used almost exclusively, not totally, in the New Testament for worship. Now, we know that this demon is not falling before Jesus in deep, abiding worship, affectionate worship of him. This word also describes the physical act of prostrating oneself. So the picture we get here is not one of worship, but the picture we get here is this, these, this demonic man, this, demon, this demoniac, running to Jesus and falling flat out, straight, laying on the ground, face in the dirt before him. This is the picture we have. Completely submitting to Jesus. They recognize his power and authority from afar and fall on their face before him. So their response of submission reveals that they recognize Jesus' divine authority. And their further words and actions will ultimately reveal their desire to hold on to their lives. So we have this picture of this demoniac laid flat out before Jesus, face in the dirt, and here is the exchange, verses 7 through 9. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. So the first thing the demoniac says, the unclean spirits say, uh, is this. What have you to do with me? Now, this is a a Greek idiom that literally can be translated this way. What what to me to you? What to me to you? And, And 
and it gives this idea of, of asking this question, kind of how we translate it. What do you have to do with me? One com- commentator says it's, it's this idea of why are you interfering with me? Why are you interrupting my life and coming to interfere with me? What have I done? What do you have to do with me? So we're seeing this, the, these unclean spirits say, Jesus, what have you to do with me? And notice how they identify him. We've already seen Jesus is the son of God. Mark makes that clear up front. But they call him son of the most high God, right? Son of the most high God. This is an explicit connection to Yahweh in the Old Testament. This is a title we see most high given to him all the time. So these demons, they see Jesus coming and they don't see some second level of divinity. They don't see some prophet who just happens to have God's power. They see Jesus coming and they see him coming in the authority of Yahweh, their maker whom they are rebelling against and they plead. What do they plead? They say, "Do not torment me." What does this mean? Well, the parallel in Matthew 8 adds, "Have you come to torment us before the time?" We've already seen in Mark 1, the other unclean spirits say, have you come to destroy us? So what this demon, these unclean spirits are concerned about is that Jesus has come to exercise final judgment, God's wrath, to cast them into the abyss is what the parallel passage says in Luke 8, to throw them into the lake of fire. Have you come to do this before it's supposed to happen? Please do not torment me. What triggers them? Well, we see that Jesus is already commanding them to come out. So the the picture is this demon's, this demoniac is running to Jesus, falling flat out, begging for him not to torment him. And Jesus has already been commanding him to come out of the man. This is what triggers him. He hears Jesus commanding this, and he doesn't just see a prophet, the son of a carpenter, stepping off the boat in some well-worn, well-traveled-in robes. No, what this demoniac sees, what these unclean spirits see, is a rider on a white horse, eyes with flame of fire, robe dipped in blood, diadems on his head, sword coming out of his mouth, And they are pleading for their life. So just a comment here about the exchange between Jesus and Legion. Jesus asked the unclean spirit its its name. He says, Legion. We learn something from this. We learn that it's not just one, but many. This Legion refers to an army. This is an army of demons. So we're seeing the Son of God come to overthrow the demonic powers in in an epic battle here, right? An army versus the Son of God. Potentially, there's up to 2,000 of them because that's how many pigs they're going to end up uh, indwelling, right? So... What, what's the point? There's, why, still, why does Jesus ask the name? There, there's you, the thought out there that when you encounter a, a demon, by knowing its name, you can now exercise authority over it, right? Is that what's happening here? I don't think so, right? 
The context gives that away. There's no, there's no supernatural power grab going on here by Jesus asking this demon its name. The context shows there's, there's a huge power distance already. He's lying flat out, pleading for his life, saying, you're the son of God. This is not a supernatural power grab. So what's, what's happening? Well, we, we learn that it is more than one, but I also think it, just, it possibly just adds a little bit of insult to injury, doesn't it? A little bit of rhetorical flourish here. Here you have the Son of God instantly recognized by an army of demons from a distance saying, do not torment me, King of the universe, Son of the Most High God. And Jesus saying, yeah, I'm the King of the universe. Who are you? I don't know who you are. An army of demons. They're not even a blip on the radar to the power and authority of the king of the universe. And they begged for their life, face in the dirt. Look at verse 10. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So this sums up their whole response. They begged him. This is the key word for us. Just like great was the key word in the last narrative, take this word, beg, we will see it again. So what do they beg? They beg to be, they beg to him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. Do not send us out of the country. So what, what does this mean? Well, it at least means this. They would rather be in something than out of something, right? There, there is a certain sense of security, it seems, that they have from being in rather than out. That We already know they don't want their lives destroyed. Now don't, don't take away our sense of autonomy and control by sending us out. Put us in something. Matthew twelve forty three through 45 says, When an unclean spirit goes out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest but finds none. Perhaps... We see a little bit of that here. These unclean spirits, at the very least, want a say in what happens. Don't destroy us. Just send us into these pigs. Let us have some semblance of control in our life. They want control. They want to preserve their lives. And Jesus gives them permission. <laughs> I... I don't know if there is a better way Mark could have illustrated, as we've already seen this power distance, I don't know if there's a better way he could have illustrated this. The, the idea I, I have in my head is, I remember going to my parents, you know, when I'm little, saying, please, 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 let me go spend the night at, you know, friend's house. This is, this is a demon, these demons, army of demons begging, please, 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 just let us have our lives and go do this. And Jesus, without even words, and here in Mark, just maybe the wave of a hand, gives them permission. Go on. And the very thing the demons feared the most, being out, losing control of their lives, happens. The pigs rush down the steep bank and into the sea and are drowning, right? Their way led to destruction. So here, 
In some, we see the demons, the epitome of outsiders. They seek to be away from Jesus rather than surrender to him. They want to hold on and preserve their lives. And the demons are also a parable for the outsiders. They go away from Jesus. They have full control. We, they get to go in the pigs. And they end up drowning in the sea. It leads to destruction. Now, we don't know if these, what happened, if these demons die. That's not what we're seeing, but they're out, right? Destruction. They're not in something anymore. So this leads then to the revealing response of the people of the region. Look with me at verses 14 through 17. The revealing response of the, of the people. There we read, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So the herdsmen see and they flee. The word here describes uh, an escape from an imminent threat. They see Jesus and they see a threat. Why? Well, maybe they just lost their pigs. That's a huge economic blow. 2,000 pigs, food, sense of security. I think, it, I think it goes a little further than just economics, though. And we'll see that, I think. And they go and tell. So they report the threat to the city and the countryside. And, and the people come and descend. Are they coming to confront this perceived threat? What's going on? They want to see what has happened. One army has been banished. Another army of people, uh, an army of people now descends. And they see the former demoniac sitting rather than roaming clothed rather than naked and bleeding, and sane rather than under excruciating, unrelenting torment, unclean, clean, unsubduable, subdued, unrelenting torment, eliminated. And as the herdsmen describe the event to them, what's their reaction? Fear. They're afraid. And what do they do with this fear? They beg. They beg. Key word again. What do they beg? They beg Jesus to leave. They fear Jesus, not for who he is, but what he will cost them. This is their greatest fear. What will Jesus cost us? The loss of control of our lives. Here's one who, whose strength and authority to subdue this one who's unsubduable has stepped in and it's disrupted any, any semblance we think we have of control. What do we do with this one? Just leave us. We don't want to be with you. Let us have control. Let us have our peaceful lives. We can't put it in your hands. They are the epitome of an outsider. They look just like the demons. Only perhaps they look even worse because instead of laying flat out on their face, as far as we know, they're brazenly standing before Jesus, telling him to leave. And they don't realize that they are just as enslaved 
as that demoniac was. Here is one who could not be subdued. He was enslaved and tormented, and they don't even see that he's a reflection of themselves. They're enslaved to wanting to preserve and control their lives, to their sense of security. And they rightly recognize Jesus is a threat to this, but they refuse to surrender to him. But there is one in this story who does, right? Let's look at verses 18 through 20. The third revealing response, the delivered demoniac. Verses 18 through 20, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Now he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So the, the narrative ends in the reverse of how it began, right? Jesus stepped off the boat. The demons meet him and beg him to go away. And the reverse is happening. Jesus is stepping on the boat to leave and the delivered demoniac is begging him to what? He's begging to be with him. Aha! The mark of an insider to be with Jesus. Here's one who sees what Jesus gives. He delivers and he gives so much more. He takes what's enslaving you and he gives what you did not have. And he wants to be with this one. But note note Jesus' surprising response to this man who not only desires what Jesus gives but desires Jesus himself, Jesus says, no. Instead, go and tell. Go where? Well, go to your home. To your own is what it says in the Greek. Go to your home, to your own. So it gives the idea of his own people, those closest to him, family, friends. He's to go and do the exact opposite of what the herdsmen did. They went and reported a threat that needed to be avoided, and he goes and reports a threat and a, to, to, a threat to what's enslaving you, a hope that needs to be embraced. And what's his message? The message is this. The Lord had mercy on me. Tell them how much The Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Can you imagine this guy returning to his own, his home, his friends, and walking through the door? And what that reception would have been like? Here is one of the last time, as far as they knew, for years, unclean, unsubduable, unrelenting torment, walking in. With this message, he is the body of proof for what Christ does. He is the body of proof for this message of mercy. So he proclaims. This word, proclaim, is also the word preached. Let's take note of this word for a second. There are only two people in Mark who have proclaimed and preached the good news so far. John the Baptist and Jesus himself. Now remember in in Mark 3, when Jesus calls the 12 to himself, 
What does he call them to do? He calls them to be with him that he might send them out to preach. And here we have, for the first time, an insider of the kingdom who is a Gentile doing this, preaching and proclaiming. And what does he proclaim? He goes and proclaims how much Jesus had done for him. So Jesus commanded him to go tell what the Lord had done. This is a work of of Yahweh, of God, and he's connecting it to what he did. And this one understands Jesus is my Lord. I'm going to tell them what Jesus has done for me. And it seems like he told more than just his own. If it's talking about his family and friends at home, he's telling everyone in the Decapolis. I think Jesus intended both. I think he knew Go and tell how much the Lord has done. Go and tell what I have done for you. How much mercy I've had on you. And tell it to everybody. So we might ask ourselves then, was this a wasted trip? Jesus leaves as quickly as he arrived. He goes all the way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, only to deliver one demoniac and then be rejected by everyone else in the region? Yes, This is exactly what he did. And this is exactly how we're meant to understand it. Here is a a vivid picture of God's redemptive grace in the gospel. I think Jesus went to the other side at this moment just for this spiritually enslaved and suffering man. Where everyone else saw an outsider, he saw a lost sheep. He he ended up being the whole purpose of Jesus' trip. This is precisely what Jesus does for you and me. Helpless, unable to do anything to save yourself. Unrelenting torment, unclean, unsubduable in our sin. Isaiah 65, 2 and 4 does very much spiritualize this situation. There God says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places who eat pig's flesh. Lost, hopeless, not of God's people. So let the strangeness of this scene sink in. Jesus goes all the way across the Sea of Galilee to save one and be rejected by many. God, the creator of all things, moved heaven and earth to send his son, not just across a sea of water, but across the sea of time and space to save you and be rejected by many, dying in your place on the cross. This is the love of God in his son. So where does this leave us? First, As we've been saying over and over, fear Jesus alone and surrender your life to him. Consider the demon-like revealing response of the people. They rightly feared Jesus. They rightly knew what his presence meant. It meant they could no longer rest their security in themselves. It shattered any illusions they had about 
control and security in economics, perhaps, and even further. And in the end, they treasured their lives. They treasured pigs more than they treasured Jesus, the greatest treasure in the universe. They traded Jesus for their pigs. The pressing and urgent question for us is that this narrative asks us, what will we do with this one who has divine right and authority over our lives? Will we surrender those li- our lives or will we try to hold on to them? Mark eight thirty five through 37, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But for whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. If you're an insider of the kingdom, if, 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 you're, if you are one of, of God's children, a follower of Christ, you've surrendered your life. He has all rights. Therefore, you accept and, and you expect change. This is an ongoing process. Christ having your life will forever be exposing and stripping away until he returns or until he calls you home. The parts in your heart that you are hiding and keeping back and trying to hold on to, you can have all of this, but you can't have this part. This is mine. No, he will expose and strip those away. Things you didn't even know you had so that he is your treasure alone. We can all think of instances in our life where this has happened, where God has used events, used things to expose places in our hearts, secret securities, where we are preserving our life in our own strength and saying, Jesus, don't come here. Personally, for me, I mean, many of you know that I do, I have this food allergy and y'all have been so kind to like, to, to make food that for me and think of me in those situations. It's just a inconvenience now. Right. But, but I haven't had it in my whole life. And when it began presenting itself some years ago, I had no idea what was going on. Right. I, I was sick for months and after test and, and doctor visit after doctor visit, not knowing what's going on, I, God was revealing to me how much I didn't even know I was putting my hope and my security in my own health. Fear of death. No, I don't want to die. And God used these events to strip away and show, no, this is a place you haven't given to me yet. Will Jesus be your treasure above that, above preserving your own life? And, and that's always happening, still happening for me, and it's happening for you. You can see these places in your life where God is doing this because he is faithful and he is kind. He's strong enough to subdue the unsubduable. Surrender your life to him. Second, fear Jesus and surrender your obedience to him. 
consider the revealing response of the delivered demoniac, the insider here, right? He does not surrender his life passively to Jesus. He's active in obedience. Even when it looks different than what he thought it should look like. Jesus, let me be with you. No. Go and tell. Look at, the, look at the timeline here. He was an enslaved enemy of God, delivered by Jesus in power and authority and mercy. He desires to be with God, to be with Jesus and give his life to him. And then he is sent out to proclaim Jesus, and he obeys. It's the life cycle of an insider of the kingdom. Map it onto your life. Do you desire to be with Jesus? From that desire... Do you obey him? From that obedience, do you proclaim him in your life and in your words? You were delivered to desire and obey. You were delivered to be sent. This is who you are. And what does that proclamation of Jesus sound like? Well, it at least starts like this. Let me tell you of how much Jesus has done for me and the mercy he's had on me. It's not some theologically educated years of study answer, right? We, We love theological education. We think it's great here, right? But this is the message of an insider that is everyone's message. Let me tell you how much Jesus has done for me and the mercy he has had on me. This is the gospel message, and this is what we go to proclaim. I think there will be a day at the wedding supper of the Lamb when we're standing there telling the stories of what Jesus has done for us and the mercy he has had on us, like showing scars. This is where Jesus took my security of that relationship and showed me that my security is in him alone. This is where Jesus took my security of, of money and, and economic security, and he took that. This is, this is the, the, the scar that represents where Jesus took away uh, this sin that I embraced because I feared what I would lose if I, if I let it go. We will be telling those stories because in this way, we conquer The picture that we saw of Jesus casting out this army of demons is what will happen to the reign and rule of Satan. He will be cast down. And we will conquer. How? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Because we surrendered to him. Fear Jesus Fear God above anything else. This is the antidote to fearfulness in this life. And surrender your life to him. And surrender your obedience to him. And this way we conquer by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Would you pray with me?